Tom Lorenzo. And this is a Pop Style Opinion Fest. Hello, kittens. Welcome back to another edition of the PSO. I am the T in your Tilo, Tom Fitzgerald, and I'm here with the low in your Tilo. Lorenzo Marquez, my lovely husband. Hello. How are you, Lorenzo? I'm fine. I was just looking at our Christmas decorations. I knew that's what you were going to talk about. I know, because I went up front uh, by the windows, and I looked at our beautiful, gorgeous new tree. And uh, I love it. Love everything about it. We are so ridiculously about Christmas. And it's, our decorations. I'm trying not year. to be weird about it because literally no <laughs> one's going to. We have no visitors coming I this know. year. Uh, so it's really, it's cares? been two weeks of getting the place all Christmas up um, I mean, for you just lo- us. You are our Christmas queen and uh, you love Christmas. We've been together 25 years almost. So I don't think we can say I am solely. <laughs> no, but these you like it a lot more than you- I do. Oh, that's. Complete nonsense. <laughs> My point Complete nonsense. is that this year we kind of like, you know, pumped it up a little more uh, because I don't know why. Maybe, well, maybe pandemic 2020, but the place looks really, really cute. And I know. We keep bragging about I it. I know, but it does. It's it a lot of work. I know. Anyway. Um, we have no children. That's why we can make our place look nice. No, but let's let's just and say it's not like we spend a lot of money this year. No, it's, it's because we had a smaller tree. And we've always had a ton of ornaments, so we got a new tree because the old tree was old, um, needed to be replaced. And then we... The only thing I spent money on, aside from buying a bigger tree this year, was we have like these snowflake decals right, on the windows. Right, like $7. $7. Anyway. That is literally all I paid right. for. But anyway, anyway. I, we, we just made it, I, I guess, more special <laughs> All right, this year. Um, this will be a movie talk. Um, episode of the PSO, but I know you have a little online kerfuffle that you're annoyed with that you wanted to talk about. No, I'm not annoyed. I, I was just, uh, yeah, are you talking about the uh, Nigella, Nigella thing. thing? I'm annoyed with it too. I just thought it was interesting because. All right, let me just yes, set, the, set the table because you are very bad at You're very good at clearing the dishes, but not good at setting the table. <laughs> um, Which in real life is actually the opposite. But anyway, go ahead. I do. Uh, fine, whatever. Yes. Um, Nigella Lawson, the British food domestic goddess, um, was shooting a TV show where she was making Cole Cannon, which is partially mashed potatoes. And she talked about heating up the cream in her microwave. She, and she didn't say microwave. She said microwave in a joking manner in the same way 90% of Americans call Target Target. Target, yeah. But um, That's the, the, first thing the that internet and social mind. media being what it is, um, and I'm going to let you take over from here about why you're annoyed with it, but I, I have some thoughts as to why this erupted the way. It, but it erupted all over social media like, oh my God, does Nigella not know how to say microwave, which is of course ludicrous. All right, go ahead. No, I just thought it was fascinating, the whole thing. And I actually read a, a very interesting article about it, uh, pointing out that there's this need now, and it's in general. I mean, look at the crown. Uh, there's this need now that we have to explain Over-explain everything. Over-explain everything. We have to explain why we're doing things. And it kills the joke. It kills the whole thing. Right. Um, I see that a lot. I mean, like several times I post on Twitter, and my tweets are like, you know, I just feel like tweeting something that I'm thinking of or watching. And there's always like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, if you don't know what you're talking about, that's fine. <laughs> you can let it go. Right. Uh, there's no, I, I just don't like this need to clarify everything. And I understand it's been four years of fake news, you know, and all this bullshit um, that people feel the need to clarify things. Is this really true or fake? You know, we've been living like this for four years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But my point is that. You know, there are certain things that you should just look at it, read it, watch it. And if you get it, you get it. If you don't, move on. I mean, there's no... I don't know. I don't think that things... We should have this need to clarify things for everybody, uh, especially on social media. Here's the thing. So much of social media is performance. Um, pure performance on everybody's part. Uh, right. And most people... I feel most people will not admit to how much of social media is a performance on their part. So um, this this clip went viral of her saying microwave and um, a bunch of people performed confusion on social media. Oh, my God. Does she not know how to spell microwave? I mean, pronounce microwave, which is a completely ludicrous on the surface point to make about one of the best selling Rest, uh, cookbook authors in the world like 
Nigella Lawson knows how to say microwave that is completely obvious and without question. <laughs> um, and she, in fact, had days of fielding questions about this on on social on Twitter, at least, I saw. And she was actually quite annoyed by it. She was quite annoyed that she had to explain to people who were pretending to be confused about this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, an internationally best-selling cookbook author, do not mispronounce microwave accidentally. I'm not a freaking idiot. And I felt for her. I'm like, Jesus, she just made a joke. But all these people had to perform, you know, for clout and hits. Because the first person who tweeted out the video of her saying it this way, well, they got like 100,000 likes. Like, it went viral. So... It's all these people right. pursuing that same sort of clout and viralness, virality or whatever, by play acting, like making a bigger deal out of something than it actually fucking is. I mean, I'm with you in this. I'm so annoyed by it. But my true, um, my deeper, I guess, thought about this is that would have lived and died on on social media and it would have gone viral and that would have been the end of it. Ha ha, she doesn't have a spell microwave. But what happened was dozens, tons, tons and tons of think pieces were written within the next 24 to 48 hours. Does she know how to spell microwave? Why is she saying it this way? And then there were others that were an explanation of that sort of humor and the sort of words that we all intentionally, it was so ridiculous. And I look at it from the perspective of my, what I do for a living, what we've been doing for a living for the last 15 years. And the perspective of what it's like to be uh, a, I know this is a derisive, people tend to use this term derisively, a content provider in 2020. You are scrambling for something new every day, something to get eyeballs on you, something that people will want to talk about, something that will entertain people. So uh, what I see when I saw all these think pieces come out was, Jesus, all of these, they're just exploiting this for another piece of content. Everyone is so content hungry that freaking Marie Claire is going to do an explainer about this. And Refinery29, I mean, I'm just throwing names out there. I don't, Vulture, you know, The Cut, whatever. Um, Jezebel. It's like everybody's so hungry for content that everybody had a 500 piece, a 500 word piece ready to go on this nothing of a story. And then, of course, what happened, as is the nature of these things, within 48 hours, the backlash against all of this started, uh, which is basically what we're engaging in right now. But a lot of writers came out and said, this is so annoying that we're having three days of people talking about what was a cute little joke and did not need to be discussed. But we're stuck inside. We're all a little stir crazy. We're performing even more on social media than we would in a normal year because we're not getting social engagement. And so something stupid like this gets blown out of proportion. Um, you're sitting here with a No, I'm just listening. Look. I'm just listening. I, I agree. And, uh, you know, again, it's that whole thing with, you know, blowing things out of proportion and, and, and having to explain and having to... You know, explain your joke, explain your cuteness for She spent for one days second. having to explain this, and I, I don't know. blame her for being annoyed by that. And if you watch the video, I mean, she pauses. It's it's one thing when you mispronounce a word and you keep going, but she pauses. She she plays with she it. She accentuates. She's yeah. totally Nigella. Right. She's exactly, uh, you know, she knows what she's doing. That's she who just she's plays. always been. It's like when you say Tarjay, and, right. and you know, you emphasize the word because you're just joking. You're just, you know, being cute and funny. Uh, and that's what she did. Uh, anyway, but I, it, it's just the whole thing. It's just this need. We're now so stuck inside. That, and but the whole thing with with the media now, or or things that we we have to explain everything. We have to make everything accessible for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that comes with social media now. And no, if you don't get it, you don't get it. I think have, most people got it, but it was a lot of right, pretending that point, they did I'm didn't. talking about in general. Yeah, I know. If you don't understand something that you read on Twitter, for example, maybe you don't have the, the point of reference and then just let it go. Google it or yeah. whatever. Um, but if you're telling a joke, if you're telling a, a story or, or, or something and you need to explain it to so that you can reach a bigger audience, then then forget it. There's no point in doing that. Yeah. I think your point about uh, likening it to the crown thing is very uh, astute and 
it, it actually is going to help us transition into our larger discussion today. But again, you're right. The whole thing with the crown about is the crown fiction or real? <laughs> we all know it's no one who is watching the show thinks they're looking at actual images and conversations of the royal family. But we all have to pretend like it's a controversy this year. Well, maybe Because com- certain people said it was. I know. I mean, maybe the conversations should be something about something else. Uh, that maybe kids or young people today should be more focused in history <laughs> and other things like that yeah. uh, when it comes to their education so that they know the difference between the two things. Um, I, I Yeah, I mean... I read a piece the other day and... Um, I really like this writer, and I know this writer likes us, so if he's listening, I'm sorry. I'm not singling you out. Still love your work. But I read a piece the other day by a young writer, and this is something you see in a lot of young culture writers. And I don't necessarily think it's because they're stupid. I think it's because they... This is what their editors expect them to do, to write for other millennial or Zoom... Young millennial or Zoom... You know, Zoomer generation. Which is... It was a piece about the Grinch musical on NBC and how the images of Matthew Morrison went viral and there was this huge backlash against him among like Zoomers and young millennials. And the piece was about how, you know, in the years since Glee, when we were all watching Glee, uh, you know, ostensibly this person was saying when we were watching Glee in middle school, um, we've all come to understand a different understanding of how his character, Mr. Shu, was terribly inappropriate like society didn't understand that he was inappropriate and millennials have figured it out and zoomers have figured it out 13 years later and i just read that i was like oh we were all making jokes about how he was an inappropriate teacher while that show was on the air this was not something society just discovered it's something you figured out because you've reached adulthood and you see a lot of this and again it's not because i think these writers are dumb or have no sense of history, they are being told by editors uh, to write that way because other young people will glom on. It was like a couple weeks ago, the, um, it was this huge thing. A uh, hundred articles were written about the fact, oh my God, did you know that Moira Rose was the mom in Home yes, Alone? And yes. it's like, all right. So fine. <laughs> I, I accept that I am I'm past the age where I'm driving the conversation on pop culture. I realize that these, these conversations get younger and younger. Um, or actually, they say focused on the same demographic. It's just that everybody ages out of it. So, yeah, okay, 25-year-olds probably are surprised to make that connection because, you know, she got old in the years since and they didn't. They, but when entire industries which are not headed by 25-year-olds, they are instead headed by um, uh, Gen X editors and even baby boomer editors, they assign these pieces and they go viral partially because uh, young people pass the information around because it is news to them and anybody older than them passes it around because they're so annoyed mm-hmm. that oh, these damn young people don't have a sense of history. Blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it, it's, it's just those, yeah. it's this play acting ignorance. Some of it plays into the youth of the writer. Some of it is indulged by editors or uh, encouraged by editors who know better, but they also know that this is how eyeballs land on their pages. But it is ultimately, it, it's not the most pressing thing we're facing, but it is ultimately damaging to the culture. Um, it is, in, I hate to do this, but in my day, if you wanted to do a piece about an actress like um, uh, Catherine O'Hara, uh, who was of a certain age and was in a big and popular role, if you wanted to do a piece pointing out what her other iconic roles were, what you might not know, it would be written that way. Here's a salute. Here's a gallery. Here's other things that Catherine O'Hara has. But in the modern era, it's, oh, my God, did you guys know? I just found out. Like, the pieces are actually written that way. Yes. And they are written that way to appeal to young people. I understand that. But it it really contributes to this sense of dumbing down, to this sense that we don't have a history anymore. Right. That history is only um, whatever 
25-year-olds learn about in the last right. five it, it, minutes. It, it's fascinating. And I'm not being anti-youth here at all. No, no, no. I, but you're just making a very good observation. Like, I look for articles every day for the lounge, and and sometimes, I, you know, I love those pieces about, like, oh, all the... Um, I don't know, Manolo Blanc, Blahnik's uh, shoes in every movie. So they write this article and then I I post them on purpose because I know the comment section are going to talk about them. But then you post an article like that and they only selected like shoes from the last 10 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because there's no point of reference past 10 years right. or past 20 years. Right. So, and of course, the comments, our comment section, our smart comment section will point out, we'll say like, oh, well, what about, you know, right. something from 20 years ago? So you see that a lot, and um, you, you, I guess you have to accept it, uh, or you know, question. I can it accept uh, the culture, assuming that young people need to, you know, need to be reminded that Moira Rose is actually the mom from Home Alone. I mean, that doesn't bother me that your average twenty-five-year-old didn't make that connection until someone pointed it out. Right. Um, it's just I don't feel like it has to be written in such a dumb tone. It can be. It can be written in an authoritative tone. That I, I mean, that's how I would prefer to see stuff like that written. Do you want to learn more about Catherine O'Hara, iconic comedic actress? Here are some of her best roles. That's an authoritative tone. But uh, so much culture writing is written in this sort of social media, this, this attempt to pursue the youngest voice and the youngest readership possible. And I understand why that is, because, of course, that's who advertisers want. They want young consumers. But uh, it's you're supposed to be authoritative. You're not supposed to be writing as if you're the person reading it. You're supposed to be conveying that's, information that, that's a very to good the point. person yes, reading that's it. That's a very good point. Yes. Um, it's it's the approach that annoys me more than any. Oh my God, I did not know this. I'm sorry, but you're writing for Vogue. Like, <laughs> shouldn't you sound, I don't know. I, I'm, I can already tell I'm sounding a little stuffy about this. But this actually goes to a different point. We're going to, hop off this and we're going to start talking briefly about Mank. Uh, mm-hmm. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about Mank, uh, we didn't review Mank because stupidly we never got to the screeners in time. We did have a screener. Um, we were invited to a virtual screening and in a flood of pre Thanksgiving emails, we just missed them or forgot about them. So um, I didn't see the film until it was released and by that point, the discourse had already gotten stale. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to say much about this film that hasn't already blah, blah, blah. But then as the week went on, I was thinking about it more and more. And I asked you to finish it last night. Yeah, because I started it and I didn't finish it. And I went back and finished it. And I, when he first said I couldn't finish it, and I was like, oh, I completely understand. It's tedious as hell. And I, I did tweet. I said it was a tedious film. Um, but I also said it gets to where it needs to go in the end. I don't right. know if no, you no. agree with that. We had the same reaction because I came to you and I said, it's tedious. And you're like, that's exactly what, how I felt. And you, and then it sort of wraps up and you're right. like, okay, that's what it's trying to say. And you guys know me. I mean, I usually finish a movie. Uh, yeah, I, I, more than I more do. More than you do, yes. Uh, you, you give up... M- more easily than I do it uh, uh, most of the time. If I think it's a waste right, of right. my time. But I continue watching. This one, I couldn't. Um, it was a combination of a lot of things. Um, first of all, listen, I love film, the films and, and movies and the movie industry and so on. But it's it's tough to... if. It, if it if it's not engaging, it's tough to watch a black and white movie that you're not interested in. That's number one. I can agree with that. Uh, if if it's and not, we watch a lot of B and W. Oh my god, I'm, all I'm, the time. TCN is on twenty four seven. Yeah, so house. it's not that we don't watch. It's them. not like I don't watch black. We and watch white. films with subtitles. Like yeah, no, no, no. That that's that's not what I mean. But but it, a, a, a modern uh, contemporary black and white movie has to be. St- interesting for me to be like completely engaged well remind me to talk about the cinematography so i thought and you know you went to film school so you know better than i do but i thought it the cinematography was a little i thought the film was way too dark most of the time it uh, was and, not shot in the manner of a 1940s black well, and white film See, but that, they I tried think, to make it look like it was yeah i think that's what uh, it had a very digitalized filtered look to it that did not say 1940s at all and the lighting I was like, yeah, this is not how I can see. The whole film, stylistically, is a pastiche of Citizen Kane. It's trying mm-hmm. 
to to make some parallels between uh, the the story of the make the writing of Citizen Kane and the actual movie. So there's a lot of Wellsian touches. The director's David Fincher, very important, very you know celebrated director. Um, so there's all these Wellsian touches and flares to it. But um, I have seen you know, black and white films that were shot on black and white film that looked like they were, you know, like, I don't know, Good Night and Good Luck, the one about uh, Walter Winchell that comes to, that's a big Hollywood uh, film that was shot to look like something from 50 to 70 years ago. They did all this stuff stylistically that reminds you of Wells and reminds you of 1940s filmmaking, but there was no getting past that the lighting and, and the, the, it felt very digital. It just yeah, felt like yeah, an Instagram yeah. filter was applied over a a more or less modern shot film. Right. So I agree with you. The look of it was just very the, off putting. The the towards the end, I, I couldn't see Lily Collins' face through I most know, of yes, the movie. Yes, towards the end, I was like, "What is going on? It looks so digital. It looked really, really." Uh, that fake. was a weird choice. So that was distracting, and if you're not engaged, then you're like, all right, this is annoying me now, and that's why I stopped and then continued it. But I have to say, after I forced myself to finish the movie, I actually kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, I think I think the movie and maybe the trailer was misleading. Very much so. Uh, and I think that's the key, that's the point here, to me at least, that I was expecting com- something completely different. Uh, had I not expected a more Citizen It is Citizen not a behind-the-scenes story of Citizen Kane. If That's I, not what it is. If my mindset wasn't you know, set on that, maybe I would have enjoyed the movie a little more. Uh, but I was like waiting for the Citizen Kane big thing dr- And it drop, never comes. And it never comes. So I guess that's Wells my is barely in it. Problem. Um, and it... It becomes a story about something. It takes a very, very long time to get to the point of what it's supposed to be about. Right. But when it locks into place and you're like, oh, it's actually not about Citizen Kane. It's about the intersection of politics and entertainment. Um, And it's something that happens aside from Citizen Kane. Um, we're supposed to believe that these events that occurred, and some of it has to do with Upton Sinclair running for governor in the 1930s, right. California governor, of which I knew absolutely zero. That's the thing. I went into it. I'm like, I know so much about Hollywood history. I know so much about Orson Welles, but it's really not about that. Right. It actually becomes about California politics and the Depression uh-huh. era and how uh, what happens when big money and big media um, take a hand in it. It's a very timely sort of story because we live in a time where big money and media are controlling politics right. to a level they never, it's unprecedented. So I, I appreciated where it finally wound up, but I was like, wow, they really wasted a lot of time getting to this point. And they really um, marketed this film poorly because it is not about Citizen Kane, no. not really. And I hate when a movie, uh, especially that that kind of movie, it's usually movies about Hollywood or about the industry itself. Uh, I hate when, when you're telling me the story. You're literally telling me the story as opposed to let the story be told by yeah. itself it's a very I, literate yeah i, I, mean, I can't lots of stand words. that type of movie Verbose. uh when you just you you telling a story that you know and you know what i mean it it but i i have to say uh my least favorite actor and character actually was gary oldman um i love everybody else everybody i mean charles dance my god he's charles amazing. Dance was, i wanted he's so i wanted wonderful. a william foster Kane, marion davies movie because because charles dance was he's amazing just, yeah and uh amanda seyfried oh my god yes completely stunning but um you're right gary oldman um, First of all, he's too old to play the part. Well, can we, we get into it. this? Yes. Gary Oldman is 62 years old, and um, at one point at the end of the film, the character he's playing says, I'm 43, which completely takes you out of the movie. Right. But prior to that happening, uh, uh, there. I mean, I already knew this going into it. I knew that Oldman was 20 years older than the character he was playing, but I tried to, through the most of the movie, I'm like, well... You know, it doesn't have to be mimicry. It doesn't, you know, people are right. allowed to, to, you know, tell their own story and dramatize it and blah, blah, blah. However, there were all these women in the story surrounding him, not least of which was his wife, played by Tuppence Middleton, who is literally 29 years younger than Gary Oldman. Um, but she isn't played that way. She's played as a contemporary of it. She plays, you know, 
And of course, there is the strangeness of, um, I don't think either one of them did badly in it, but they are both British actors, and they're playing like Brooklyn Jews from the turn of the <laughs> century. And okay, they, I, I, it's not for me to say whether they did a good job, at the, but it was Tuppence Middleton. I was like, wow, she's really working hard to do that whole Brooklyn Jewish thing uh, of the 19th, like tough talking kind of. Um, and they, they kind of uglified her makeup, I guess, to make her look older. They gave her really dark circles under her eyes, but I, it just was weird. The, their first scene together, where she is clearly 30 years younger than him, she is taking his pants off of him. And it's like, uh, oh, okay, or I guess that's his way. Okay. And they, she talks about raising the kids and everything. And it's just, I guess you could cast these people that to play these roles and to play. I mean, certainly there are people that are 30 years apart in marriage, 20 years right, apart. That's the, the, I, these I things happen. Yes. These things exist. However, Tuppence Middleton's character is a contemporary of his. Right. They, are the, the they are the same life. age in yes. real life. And she's written that way. And she plays it that way. Right. She plays herself as a middle-aged woman, and she's not. And he's a 62-year-old man playing a 43-year-old and clearly also is not. Then there's Lily Collins, who is his transcriptionist. And it is a platonic relationship. Right. But um, um, even in the script, uh, uh, Mank's wife mentions all his platonic romances with all the women. It's a motif in the story. He's got a nurse that's waiting on him. He's got a trans... And they're beautiful women. And they're much, much much younger than him, constantly tending to his every need. And then, of course, there was an ongoing story with Mank and uh, Marion Davies, who have a friendship that borders on romance. It's sort of this flirtatious friendship. In real life, they were the same age. In the movie, they're 30 years apart, and very clearly so. Like, Amanda Seyfried is 35, but she still looks 25, especially if you shoot her in washed-out black and white. Right. So it was weird, there are scenes together where they're holding hands and drinking champagne and walking around the, the grounds of San Simeon flirting with each other. I was like, this is, it just gives the whole scene a completely different feel right. than, it, if you, than what they're actually saying to right, each if other. If you've never seen a picture of the real people. Um, uh, it, I actually po- uh, posted a link to an article in the uh, one of our lounges showing side by side the comparison. And you can see that they're all young. The women are all kind of the same age. Right. And, you know, Mank is way younger in real life. Uh, so, right. And I didn't know any of this. Uh, I did my research later. Um, so I'm watching the movie, like you said, and, and she's taking his pants off. And I'm like, who is she? Is she like a, an assistant? Um, yeah. I thought she was an very assistant. Very I didn't know she was the wife. It was just weird. Anyway, David Fincher in an interview about his unusual casting choices said that um, Mankiewicz, who was a raging alcoholic, uh, that he uh, looked much older than his years. But not like Not like that. He just looked like a puppy, middle-aged guy who drank too much. He didn't look 20 years older than his age. And Fincher said, and I just thought, oh my God, you're revealing a little bit too much about yourself here. Fincher said, I'm 58, and I think... Gary Oldman looks younger than me. And I'm like, okay, buddy, do you really think there's a huge difference between 63 and 58? Like, you're really fooling yourself, number one. Number two, while I could buy the argument that Gary Oldman could pass for a 58-year-old, I would imagine most 63-year-old actors could pass for 58 years old. They can't pass for 43. But, okay, even all of that, even if I accept that you think Gary Oldman can pass for an actor 20 years younger than him, why did you cast actresses 30 years younger right. than him to play women who are the same age? Like, that's such a blind spot. And it's so patriarchal that it's a really off-putting. Like, 63-year-old men can play 43-year-old women, but I'm going to cast all women in their 30s to play characters who are also 43. Right. Um, so that was a huge issue for me with, with the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the way I wanted to connect this sort of tangentially to what we were saying before about The Crown is that the huge controversy that sprung up, and it was part of the reason why I just backed off doing any reviewing, is film Twitter can be so goddamn precious yes. and so infighty. Um, and there were a lot of people who were just offended by the film's implication that Mank wrote all of her, of um, 
Citizen Kane, which is a story that has confounded the film community ever since Pauline Kael wrote, the legendary film critic, wrote a piece saying as much 50 years ago. And there really isn't... I mean, they have co-writing credit on it. And... um in the real world, I don't think there's that much evidence that all of Citizen Kane was Herman Mankiewicz's. For many, many, many years, the, the understanding has been that Mankiewicz wrote the screenplay, Wells adapted that work, and then shot... You know, if you know anything about Wells as a director, right, exactly. like there's no question that Wells yes. is all over that film. Yes. That is Orson Welles. Every, every frame of it is just the DNA of Orson Welles. Um, exactly. So... So film Twitter got all up in arms that there was an implication that Mank uh, wrote all of Citizen Kane. And this comes back to The Crown in the sense that, are, why are we taking this like a documentary? It's a dramatization of people who were long dead about events that are up, have always been questioned. Right. And this film, like any film would, takes a side. There's nothing wrong with that because it's not a documentary. It's not entering into the record or library or anything like that. Um, but even going past that point, I think, no offense, because there are some high-ranking film critics who, who were put off by this, but I feel they misread it. Because I don't think the film is telling you that Mankiewicz is responsible yeah. for it. No, not it's at all. It's telling you that Mankiewicz felt that he was responsible for it. That he needed some credit. Uh, um, uh, yeah. And all screenwriters think that they are fully responsible. I mean, there is some joking about that in the story. And in fact, Mank gives a very, very, very good as a description of what screenwriting is. He said, I gave him a plot and a destination. It's up to him to what he what he does with it. And that is a very good uh, sort of summation of the difference between a, a filmmaker and a director and how the combination of their work often is what produces the final product. Um, and I felt that the film was kind of clear on that point, but a lot of critics got really bristly about the idea that anyone right. other than Wells um, was fully responsible for the film. I, th I think it goes back to what I said that uh, there's a tendency now, especially with with television uh, and and movies, so uh, uh, I don't know, so easy to to find and watch these days with right. with, with the internet that we rely on one media only to tell uh, to tell us history. Right, and I think that's a bad thing. If you watch a movie, that you shouldn't take that movie as uh, the whole history of whatever you watch. Of course not. Same thing with the Crown. Right. I mean, you should do your research. Go out there, buy a book, or, or Google the, whatever you just watched, and 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 expand a little more. But I don't think it's the creator's responsibility to make sure that you understand that whatever they created is is fiction. I or mean, that's or just, their interpretation. Of course it's their right. interpretation. I mean, learn on. learn film language. I like, know. That's what films are. I know. I have, uh, again, linked to many interesting Getty, um, Getty Museum articles about that, about uh, professionals, about people with, with a lot of experience um, uh, analyzing and, and talking about paintings, for example, or things that we see. That, for example, we see a, a painting of a battle and we take it that painting as a 100% description or, you know, real description, right, full right, description right. of whatever happened. And when sometimes it's just the interpretation of the artist. So, I mean, this has been going on for, for our entire right. human history. I mean, you need to understand media why, literacy and how to read. Why is this all of a sudden a Again, challenge? Again, it's this sort of faux uh, confusion. And I do think your, uh, your observation about fake news and Right. I mean, we are just in the throes of a significant portion of this country believing that there was electoral fraud, oh, of God. which there yes. is absolutely no evidence. no evidence. But, you know, 50 million people believe it right now because reality is apparently up for debate for a lot of people. Right. Um, let's move on to that. All right, we're going to talk about The Prom. <laughs> Ryan Murphy's The Prom. But anyway, which... I just want to finish, Mank, here. Just my last uh, thought is that Amanda Seyfried is absolutely fantastic. I hope she gets nominated. She will get nominated. I do hope she gets nominated. The costumes are gorgeous. She is really amazing. Just I amazing. Mean, Best work of her career. Every time she's in a scene, you just, you can't not. You wish it was a movie about right, her. Right. You stop looking. I mean, you, you you keep looking at her the whole time. Right. She's really, really, really that good. Uh, anyway, so, yeah. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the prom. Um, which dropped today, and if you're listening to this uh, today... On the Hallmark Channel. No, you, I'm sorry, Netflix. 
the prom, which dropped today, but if you're listening to this, you might, uh, if you've listened to this on Friday, you might not have watched it yet. So we're going to try and be a little, well, I mean, there's not much in the way of spoilers, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it, give our review. There's been some controversy, of course, it's 2020. (laughs) There's been some controversy surrounding the film, not least of which is the casting of James Corden. Um the talk show host and also occasional actor who is playing a flamboyant gay man. So there's some controversy surrounding that. Um, but let's start with our thoughts on the, I, okay. So I watched it first thing this morning and I was not into it for the first 45 minutes. And then I slowly, the caffeine kicked in, my grumpiness <laughs> tamped down a little bit. And, I, and you really do have to just, it is super, super corny. That's the thing. I thought it was going to be Glee because it was a musical set in a high school about gay kids. So I thought it was, and it, Ryan Murphy was in it. I mean, was directing it and producing it. So I thought, okay, this is going to be very Glee-esque. But Glee was, it had an earnestness to it, but it also was a heavy dose. In fact, it was one of the huge tonal problems for the show as it you know moved on is that it tried to be cynical and sarcastic, but also... Um, right. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the dealing with some sound issues. Um, Glee was cynical and sarcastic, but also tried to be earnest at the same time, and it always had these tonal issues, whereas The Prom is basically just pure corny earnestness from the go. Give me your thoughts on it. Well, I, again, I didn't read much about it. Uh, I just saw the trailer, uh, watched the trailer, so I decided to just, you know, go. So I turned it on. I thought the beginning was excellent. Uh, I thought the, the setup uh, with with the main uh, actors in bro- uh, Broadway uh, and in uh, you know mm-hmm. on Broadway, the whole thing being an actor and being reviewed by the New York Times and the critics and all that pressure. I right. thought the take was amazing and funny, funny as hell. So I did like that. The uh, I don't know, it was very sarcastic and and I. I don't know. I like humor with a lot of it sarcasm. Was a, it was biting. Yes. It was a biting portrayal of of and the whole musical tries to be a little biting in the and in the way it portrays celebrities and their self-absorption. Right, right, right. And their narcissism. Um and the beginning of the film is actually good because it doesn't pull its punches. It really pulls its punches by the end of the film, and basically they're all wonderful people by so, the end. So I thought the the beginning was great. They're all amazing actors. They gave great performances, and then they got on the bus and went to this small town, and I think that's when things kind of fell apart for me, um, that it just it was way too focused on, on the whole... A couple wanting to go to prom, which is the main story. The main story is about two young, uh, two girls in a high school in Indiana uh, who want to go to prom together because they're gay. And the school shuts down the prom. It becomes a national um, story. This is actually based on something that actually happened. And these celebrities hear about it and they travel to Indiana because they're going to save this girl and save the... They, they just want to do good and get good PR for themselves. And you know there's a happy ending. I mean, you know that. I mean, you know that, you know, coming in, but I, it, it, which is fine. But it's just the way it's done that, to me, was problematic. Um, it's, it was way too earnest, was way too sweet, and, and, and it's just... I wished at certain points... There were certain points where I was like... I mean, there's a, you give a little nod to this. A character might say it in passing, but these characters, these Broadway actors were being completely inappropriate almost from the jump. There's a scene with Andrew Reynolds singing to a bunch of, they're supposed to be high school students about how they're all going to hell because they're not virgins and they have tattoos. Like his point is you can't criticize gay people for going on, on Christian grounds when you guys are violating all these rules. But I'm like, okay, it's really inappropriate for a 40-year-old man to be talking this way to high school <laughs> students. Um, and no one's commenting on that. And then there was a scene with with Nicole Kidman and the girl, the one girl, the one queer girl. And Nicole Kidman is literally thrusting her crotch in this girl's face as she's singing and dancing. And I'm like, this is weird. It's weird. Why is no one talking about how inappropriate this is? But the the movie doesn't want to go there. The movie wants to approach all of this with utter earnestness. And fine, 
buy it, you buy into it and it's fine, whatever. It, um, I have no problem with that. It was, it doesn't really set me on fire, but I, I feel like, you know, for the Netflix crowd for this point in time, it's the holiday season. It's a pretty crappy year, a very earnest, hopeful, bubbly little confection of a movie musical is fine on that level. Um, I do have thoughts, criticism, but go. Yeah, I let me start with the positive. I think <coughs> it's always great to have movies like that uh, or or TV shows like that. I didn't have these things growing up, and I I can only imagine uh, you watching you uh, you you know you as a I don't know as a young kid watching mm. with your parents or whatever. I do. I do think it has a point to exist, <laughs> um, but towards the end, I, I swear to God, I thought I was watching a Hallmark uh, Hallmark Channel, um, a Disney like High School Musical type of movie, with gay uh, kids. because it got so sweet and everybody was sweet and everybody all of a sudden just accepted the whole thing. Yes. All of a sudden, everybody accepted homosexuality and queerness and gayness and sang just, their bigotry I away. Know, and I it just. Drop of a dime, but all that's of what done. it is. Like, yeah, but, right. But it's just a little weird, and, and it's not our us, right? It's not. I'm I'm way too cynical for that. That's yeah. bottom line here. But so, yeah, I mean, you have these horrible characters in the beginning of the movie that they all, all of a sudden, become th- these wonderful people, um, and they. I think it it tried to to do too much. Uh, it be- did because it was not just about these two ladies uh, it was also about their own past their own story each one of them so it was just a little too much um i thought um too sweet it's typical ryan murphy um ryan murphy i i do think ryan murphy is doing good bringing these stories uh bringing our awareness to, to do a to, better to, job to, at to them queerness i think he does a good job doing that but uh he has a tendency to literally just stop the scene and turn into this i don't know this this message this announcement right. it just turned into something serious and i don't think you need to do that to uh, bring awareness to whatever even if right. it's if it's that a was one of the things awareness. that plagued glee in its later right. seasons was that it became so a very special episode while at the same time trying to be have like sue sylvester be this horrible per- you know it just never worked um, putting aside all of that, whether you buy into that sort of thing, I, from a purely technical critical perspective, it's not a well-directed musical. Um, he rushes through so many scenes. Nobody ever gets to stop and have a moment. I mean, they have a moment and then boom, a second later, it's another song. Right. Um, there are a lot of songs in this musical and I wouldn't, that wouldn't normally be a complaint except... I can't remember one of them because they are completely indistinguishable from each other. They are, in many ways, uh, pastiches of Broadway songs because these are Broadway performers, and in some cases they're actually supposed to be singing the hits from their past. So the songs themselves are just basic Broadway you know, song and dance pastiches, which make none of them memorable. None of them. The other thing is, it wasn't until... Well, I'm just say at the end of the movie, there is a massive dance scene that I was like, why, why weren't there more of these? I mean, it is a movie about teenagers. You would think they'd have these more of these big, big, big dance scenes, because that moment was one of the truly energetic uh, musical moments in the film. The other ones, they felt so perfunctory, and I was all through the film. I was like, should they have cast? you know, musical performers. And then I had to remind myself, um, you know, well, first off, Andrew Rannells has been on Broadway in the Book of Mormon and he's got his bona fides. James Corden was in Cats um, and Into the Woods. Meryl Streep was in Into the Woods. And uh, uh, Nicole Kidman was in Moulin Rouge. Like, they do actually have not just um, musical bona fides, but major musical bona fides, even though I don't really think of Meryl or James or or Nicole as musical performers. I think Nicole was rather low energy. I think when it became her moment to do her Fosse number, I was like, well, this, I watched Fosse Verdon last year, and I don't think she's hitting half the moves. I don't think, I don't think she really brought anything to it. Uh, one critic made the point that, um, Meryl Streep was essentially playing Patti LuPone 
and that maybe the role would have been better if Patty right. Lapone was there, and mm-hmm. it probably would have. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. But, I mean, half the appeal, I think, especially to Ryan Murphy, was to shoot this with the, the biggest names he could possibly get. Uh, and that was, you know, I think he wasn't going to populate it with Broadway actors. He was going to populate it with movie stars right. because that's what he did at the end. The last several seasons of Glee was nothing but guest stars, you know? Um, so, but I do think that worked against it because none of them were true, uh, hit the boards, Broadway hoofer. You know what I mean? They just weren't, and they weren't bringing that energy to it. Uh, I know James Corden has a Tony, and but all right, let's get into him. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that? Yes. All right, so the big controversy, and it, the the movie was really ripped into by several critics, gay critics, for this fact, mm-hmm. was um, the fact that James Corden is playing a flamboyant gay character. Right. And uh, there were a, it turned, you know, there were a lot of charges of just calling it gay face, just putting on, and it was like a minstrel act. And, and so I, my hackles were up going into it. Like a lot of gay people who write about culture, who write about movies and films, um, and this came up in several reviews by gay writers this week. I'm not all that um, strict about whether or not gay actor, uh, whether or not gay characters need to be portrayed by gay actors. I don't have a strict rule about that either way, especially since I have seen performances by straight actors that I found very affecting and very true. However, I've seen way more performances by straight actors that never hit the mark. When it comes to Corden, I didn't like some of these reviewers were outright uh, offended by his performance. I mean, it's hand flapping and it's a lisp and he sashays around and he's a flamboyant gay. Now, honestly, I don't have a problem with that portrayal or and as many writers have uh, as many uh, critics have pointed out, that is the role as it was written and portrayed on Broadway. It, he was a flamboyant mm-hmm. sissy gay. Now the actor who played the and originated the role on Broadway was himself gay, so there was a a sense that he was there was a trueness to it. Uh, I didn't get that sense of trueness. Some actors can pull it off, um, but I do think for straight, I think of um, like Trevante Rhodes, who is not gay, but played a beautiful, beautiful scene as a gay man uh, in um, that, what is it, Blue? Blue Moon? Is that Blue no, Moon? No. Oh, shit. I always forget the name of this movie. I, I, know, I will look I'm it up sorry. when you're talking. Um Stanley Tucci has played gay, and it did not offend me. I know Sean Penn, uh, when he played Harvey Milk, I, th- I was actually very impressed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, Bill Hader played a gay man in that movie with Kristen Wiig, where they were siblings. Was it Kristen Wiig? Yeah. And I loved him in that because I felt it was a very, very on-point portrayal. But I do think when you start getting into flamboyant and stereotypical gay men, um, those roles are probably better handled by the Nathan Lanes of the world than the James Cordons of the world because never, it always felt to me like um, he wasn't someone truly flamboyant and sissy. Every once in a while, he would remember that he was supposed to be and flap his arms and walk. But for the rest of the time, he was James Corden, as right. we know James Corden, except I, with I, an American I, I accent. I think that's a very interesting conversation to have. Because it starts with the fact that um, we have a problem with straight men, as you said, uh, portraying spe- specifically uh, flamboyant. Moonlight. Picture. Moonlight. That's the name of the movie there with Trevante Rhodes. Why do I always... Th- because the name of the play is In Moonlight, Boys Look Blue, but the film itself is called Moonlight. Black Boys Look Blue. The film. I'm sorry. Sorry. So I think... We we always we're always going to have an issue, and I think we do have a major issue when when a, a straight uh, man plays a flamboyant uh, flamboyant character. Um, gay were character. you offended by it? And that's my point. I think we need to be a little careful with that because I see a tendency to completely eradicate this type of gay people uh, as if it's something to be ashamed of. So we have to to kind of like separate things here. Okay, we don't want maybe. Uh, straight men, pr- uh, you know, performing these type of roles. These because stereotypes. Yeah, these stereotypes because it's just going to, you know, 
give an impression to people in general that, uh, you know, that's a, I don't know. It, it's weird because I feel that because I'm part of the community, I think flamboyant gay men are a major part of the community and they need to be represented. So maybe we need to look for different actors, as you said, but they need to be represented as well. I'm, I'm, I fear that we're so afraid of these characters that nowadays with the queer, with the you know the queer uh, community being more open and so on we, we can't just shun these people and we can't just you know be mock these people or or, or have a try to or, or or force gay people now to be a different type of, of gay people just so that we're represented in 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 a, in a different way I don't think people had a... I didn't read anyone who had a problem with the fact that the role was stereotypical, just the fact that he was... See, that's the thing. Uh, It becomes offensive... To some people, it becomes offensively stereotypical only because it's a straight man doing it. All through the film, even though I know he's not really an actor, I kept thinking of Ross Matthews. Right. Because Ross Matthews is a very flamboyant chubby gay man and that is that is essentially the character a flamboyant chubby gay man um who hits all the stereo loves fashion loves musicals loves you know loves sparkle whatever that was the character and all i could think was wow i almost feel like ross matthews could have knocked this out of the park because it would have felt true now uh, you can hit these moments as an very good actors can find these moments and not make them feel like a minstrel act uh, but James Corden is not that dude. I was not, at, never once was I offended by this character, nor was I offended by his portrayal. He went for it, but he never hit it. He just wasn't there. Uh, I never believed he was as flamboyant as he was claiming to be. It was like something he kept adding at the end of a sentence, uh, you know, like a lisp or just a flapping of his hands or something. But it didn't feel endemic to him. And that's the part where I'm like, well, yeah, either you cast this with an actor who can do that, or you just get yourself a gay actor. This is tied into a couple of other things, not just this this movie. Um, Viggo Mortensen has a movie coming out called Falling, uh, it is, which he wrote and directed, and he stars in as a gay man who is uh, taking care of uh, an elderly father with dementia. Um, and I'm just going to bring this in. We're, we're the most popular movie in the history of Hulu right now is Happiest Season, which dropped a couple weeks back. It's the lesbian love story with uh, Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis in it. Now, I don't think Mackenzie Davis is out of the closet. I don't. I know a lot of people make assumptions about her being queer, but I don't think she is. Uh, so I bring up Kristen Stewart because. That was one of the things that I didn't love that movie. I thought because I don't love Christmas rom coms, um, but it was really, really nice to see a totally queer girl, and Case Stu is that uh, playing a totally queer girl in uh-huh. love. As a gay person, I'm sorry. There are certain stories and certain portrayals that right. are just better when you hand them to a gay person. Um, now, like I said, the other person, the girlfriend in that uh, was played by an actor who I'm, I don't think is gay. And uh, the sort of love triangle, briefly, the other girl in the picture was Aubrey Plaza, who, again, is as identifies as straight as far as I know. But it worked. And part of the reason all this whole love triangle worked is because at least one of them was queer. Mm-hmm. And she was bringing that super queer girl energy to her performance and I think the other actresses, especially Aubrey Plaza, were playing off of that. I never saw Aubrey Plaza play a lesbian before or a queer woman before, but she nailed it. And there was serious, serious chemistry between her and Kristen Stewart, like sexual chemistry. So it's not a hard and fast rule. Um, I agree. Now, with Viggo Mortensen, however, when I heard about this film, I was like, I really don't have any interest in seeing this film at all. He, he wrote directed and stars and he secured all the financing so he gets to make whatever movie he wants i'm not here telling people to boycott it or saying he should not have made that film however um you are telling the story of a gay man and what i guess what disappointed me when i read that was um i uh provided elder care to both of my parents before they died for years 
along with my siblings. I wasn't alone in that. But I, so when I first heard about this movie about a, a middle-aged gay man and his elderly father that he's taking care of, I actually got a little excited because I can remember when I was deep into taking care of my dad. I was seeing him like three or four days a week. And, um, and I forget what, there was some movie that was out at the time about taking care of an elderly parent. And I remember thinking, I can't watch anything like that right now. And thinking, I wonder if anyone will ever make a movie about this mm-hmm. where it is a gay. Whenever you see these domestic dramas, these family-based dramas about universal family experiences like taking care of an elderly parent, gay people aren't really in those stories. Queer people are not represented all that well in those stories, let alone the lead in that story. So I was very interested in the idea because I did have an experience where I had to take care of an elderly parent, but my life as a gay man was still, you know, I didn't go home to a wife and children to talk about this. I went home to my husband and my cats. Right. <coughs> and your father wasn't homophobic. like. And the- my father wasn't homophobic. But even so, gay people, there are certain types of stories that get portrayed in media with gay people. And this one felt fresh to me. I was like, oh, a gay person taking care of an elderly parent. That is not something you see a lot of. Right. And unfortunately, then I found out, and again... I would not have cared that Vigo was playing a gay person. Um, he's a sensitive actor. Um, I don't think he's hung up on his masculinity at all. And I, I feel he can do that. I, and I, I haven't seen the performance yet. I don't know if I will see it. But I, I don't doubt that he brings a sensitivity to his portrait. On the other hand, I, I would be very, very surprised if the character he plays is visibly or stereotypically gay in any way. He's going to be one of those gay men that look and talk like Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> right. Am I well, wrong? There you go. He's not going to be like singing right. to show tunes or going to drag shows. I just want to say, the the point at which that movie became problematic for me was that he was all over it. That he never let any gay person have any creative input into it. It was, he directed it, he wrote it, he's starring. And I'm like, well... At least with Happiest Season, you had Dan Levy, you had Kristen Stewart, you had Clea Duvall, who wrote and directed it, who I believe is out. Um, so, you know, and again, with with um, James Corden, okay, he wasn't playing a gay character, but he was being directed by one of the premier big gay directors going right now, right. you know. And it should be noted that Ryan Murphy has gotten Emmy Award-winning performances out of straight men playing gay. Darren Criss played... Andrew Cannanen, and and was very believable as a slutty psycho gay boy. Um, so uh, maybe that's not why, but the Viggo Mortensen thing that really sticks in my craw because I'm like you, you really didn't let any queer people have a say in this at all. Right. You are going to tell this story, which is my story in so many ways. Right. You know, go ahead. I my take is, I don't think you have to be. A- a certain something to to make a contribution to a an art project. Um, um, for I mean, you you have. I'll give you an example. You have the color purple, for example. It was written by a black person and directed by by uh, what's Steven his name? Spielberg. Yes, a white man. And I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he did a phenomenal job. But there were a lot of other people. Uh, in the project yeah, that yeah, were yeah. African American, not so, just the actors, but the producers. Everybody. Quincy exactly. Jones well, that's the did point the I'm music. To make. So, if you have a gay project or if you have gay characters, you have to have uh, gay representation. Gay representation. I mean, it would be like me writing a story about a Jewish uh, man, and I write the story, I direct the story, I perform the story. I mean, it's just weird if I don't have the contribution of anybody. Right. I'm not saying you can't do it. I mean, maybe you do, I don't know, live in the neighborhood, you had friends, you had some sort of experience with whatever you're trying to to depict here, but you still need deep knowledge, deep experiences, and you have to rely on other people uh, to do whatever you want to do. So, And I also want to say that I when I hear these stories about uh, straight men uh, shouldn't be doing gay characters, I understand where it's coming from. It's because we do not have enough representation. Enough. It's always the point. Gay actors don't get to play these roles. Yes, but at the same time, if we question that, I mean, we're opening a door here for people to question. Well, should we let gay people play uh, straight characters then? So, 
maybe we need to work more on having more representation as as queer as a queer person uh so that we don't need to have this conversation anymore and we start having a conversation like well is this person good enough to play the role regardless um, um the thing be- about because because you can i mean <laughs> i hear people also saying well he's too gay to play a straight man in love with a woman i mean we hear that's that type of conversation too but again goes back to what i said the main point is that we don't have enough representation and when we are out there and in film form uh we don't want to be misrepresented we want to make sure that it's it's a correct way of doing it and uh, maybe we don't have all the tools yet for that When it comes to uh, the prom, it should be noted that right next to James Corden playing gay is Andrew Reynolds, who is gay, playing an ostensibly straight character, or at least a character who never declares either way. Um, And this does go back to, well, we can't say that only gay actors can play gay roles, because then does that mean that Andrew Reynolds doesn't get that role? Uh, Also, I need to point out that the two girls at the center of the story, which is a lesbian love story, the one actress, um, oh, I forget her name, Emma something, uh, identifies as queer. I read an interview where where she has a gay, she said her mother's gay and that she identifies as queer, which, okay, that's, you've got your bona fides. But Ariana DeBose, as far as I know, again, is not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe she is. Uh, I'm not policing someone's private life here or or anything like that. What I'm pointing out is, there were a range of portrayals by straight and gay actors all over this film, but everybody zeroed in on the straight guy playing the stereotypical gay guy. And while I agree that that wasn't, the performance never completely gels for me and it never really felt true to me. I was never offended by it. I just, in this case, I was like, they should have put Nathan Lane in there or barring that they should have put Ross Matthews in there. Um, But yeah, whatever. I'm not offended uh, by gay, by straight actors playing gay. But I will acknowledge that when gay actors get the chance, okay, what if Dan Levy had played James Corden's part? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, ask him to put on a fat suit and play that character, and he he'd be great in it. Uh, that's the thing, gay act, gay actors, queer actors, they do bring something innately true and honest to their portrayals of queer people. Same thing with Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart has a whole fantastic career in which she has played straight woman. So it doesn't mean that she can't. But when you give her the chance to, the energy is there in a way that that's why people got so excited for Happiest Season. And, you know, I know there's some Hallmark uh, Christmas movies with gay couples in them. And I believe the actors are gay. I think in one of them, the two actors are actual boyfriends. Um and I, that's not my bag. I don't watch mm. any of that stuff. But I do want to call that out, that that is good. And I'm glad that when Hallmark and Lifetime made those decisions that they cast gay actors in those roles because they are historic. Like the Christmas holiday rom-com is a television staple at this point. There are literally thousands of them, but almost none of them have featured gay couples. So when this was a historic year for queer representation in holiday entertainment, and I'm glad that they cast queer actors in those roles. It's not, I'm not saying they couldn't have cast straight guys, but I don't know. I just feel it, it again, it all depends. Stanley Tucci and the devil wears Prada every once in a while. I, I mean like all, I watch that movie twice a year. His role is really, really charming. I love him in it, but it does feel like a minstrel act. It does. It does. It, does. Feel it feels yes. like a straight guy playing a gay guy. Am so, I wrong? Yeah. So should we look for the right people, you know, doing the right, uh, you know, performing it, really really well or just you know gay people or queer people it it's yeah i mean there's it, no hard and fast no it's a conversation to have and i think we need to expand our possibilities uh give straight people queer people uh more opportunities I agree. so that it, it, hopefully it will get to a point where you look at someone and say okay you're good or not for the role and that's it the end of it right you don't need to question their sexuality um but yeah I think that is it. I uh-huh. think we have uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, exhausted this. I, we just wanted to get in on, on this conversation. Didn't love James Corden, but not offended. I can't say I'm offended by Viggo Mortensen's movie, but I, nothing about it. I mean, the, I'm, I'm not likely to rush to see it because of the lack of queerness in the creation of that movie and because it hits close to my life. Um, but, you know... 
but it's it, not it, an easy it's question. It's an interesting conversation because when you mentioned on Twitter the replies, some of the replies shocked me. Well, it was me. all straight women telling yeah. me how to feel about it. And I was some like, of well, the replies shocked go. me. One, one person said, well, do you need to be, do you have to be in the Titanic to be able to portray that type of response that is just so wrong. It was all Vigo Mortensen fangirls. Uh, all fans of him, of his, you know, uh, you know, performances or whatever, his career. And so you kind of like, all right, so you giving him a pass here just because you like the actor. This is not really what the conversation is about here right, right now. Uh, that type of stuff. So that's why those conversations are important because there's still a lot, you know there's still a lot of people out there. I but think. the um, the prom. I was gonna say the crown. The prom is it's fine. I don't think um, I don't think Murphy did the greatest job in the world. But I don't think he was shooting much more than uh, let's do a fun little confection. Uh, I wish the musical numbers had been shot by someone who really knew how to shoot musical numbers. They really lack energy. But they, as a whole, it's an entertaining little fluffy thing for the holidays with lots of lots and lots of sequins and sparkle. You know, whatever. Um, yeah. I don't want to give it a pan, but I, I didn't. Well, yeah. It, I didn't love Here, it. Here's my reaction. I started to watch it, and I literally laughed out loud in the beginning. I noticed that. Because uh, I thought the setup, the setting up every character, main character, um, aside from the two ladies, um, it was phenomenal. I was laughing. The lines were funny. And then they got on the bus, and then that's when things it all just fell apart. went south. But and I, I was will like, say oh, that no. Meryl worked her ass off to yes, hold that film yes, up. Yes, yes, yes. But um, she always does. She always does. Uh, all right, that's it. Yep. Thank you, kittens, for listening to us ramble once again in our cartoon voices. Love you, mean it. We'll be back next week with whatever crosses our eyes and crosses our desk. In the meantime, bye-bye. Bye. Bye.